I'm Sarah Neal, and you're listening to the Religion and Socialism podcast. Typically for this podcast, we interview religious activists and thinkers to talk about politics, justice, and faith. And typically not everyone we talk to actually identifies as a socialist, and some of you probably have noticed that. And just by way of explanation, that's deliberate. Um, We're a working group under the DSA, Democratic Socialism of America. DSA is specifically interested in coalition building and generating mass movements. And the fact is that democratic socialists or socialists of any stripe, if we only talk amongst ourselves, that reality is not going to happen. That said, in this interview, we're actually going to dive into socialism, uh, democratic socialism to be specific. I know we have a bunch of new listeners, people who are new to DSA, new to socialism. I'm pretty new myself. And so this interview is actually really helpful for me. His name is Andrew Wilkes. He's a pastor of young adults and social justice at the Greater Allen African Methodist Episcopal Cathedral of New York in Jamaica, Queens. In this conversation, he walks us through why socialism is, for him, a theological commitment. Uh, we'll talk about what that what democratic socialism can concretely look like in terms of, for example, how housing or businesses are structured and run. And we also talk about race and why leftist politics often has a race problem. His pastoral roots or vocation really shine through. I, I think you'll t- you'll start to see it at the end of our conversation. He gets a little sermonic and has this extended riff on St. Paul, which is pretty awesome. I think I really love this conversation, Reverend Wilkes, because one of the questions we ask here at Religious Socialism is, what does religion contribute to the left? And we ask it and vice versa, but that's one of the questions we ask. And I feel like this interview, we really get into them. So just to paint the scene and lay the landscape for you guys. We met up for this interview a few months ago uh, in Reverend Wilkes' office in CUNY, City University of New York, where he is completing his PhD in political theory. Now, keep in mind this guy already has a graduate degree from Princeton Theological Seminary, so as you soon see, he's a pretty robust thinker. He's also an organizer. He serves on the Labor and Religion Coalition Board of Directors, on the DSA's Religion and Socialism Editorial Group, which is how we're connected, and most recently he mobilized faith leaders in New York City for the Bernie Sanders campaign. So, he's fascinating. Give this a listen. Andrew, could you tell us a little bit more about, uh, I know you're involved in lots of different things, um, the kinds of projects and commitments you have going on right now. I'd like to say that, um, for me, socialism is something of a theological commitment. I don't think socialism is a utopia, uh, but I think it's a less grotesque form of beloved community than what capitalism is. And so, if that's the case, then I think we have deep moral obligation to, to push for a system that decommodifies access to basic social goods like housing and education and health care to accent the importance of having cooperative arrangement in businesses to the fullest extent possible as opposed to pushing, you know, employee stock ownership, but workers don't get a chance to actually control what it is that they produce and the goods that they they help to create. Uh, and so for me, a deep sense of the common good, a deep sense of pushing for love and justice in public requires going beyond just a generic kind of justice talk into um, socialist territory. Mm-hmm. You're almost describing a prophetic-ish role in terms of expanding the terms of the conversation, the imagination. Is, is that, am I picking I, that up? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think a prophetic role is, 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 is spot on. I mean, the, the, 
a part of what I think the the social imagination of uh, certainly uh, Christian faith. I, I'll speak from uh, Black Christian context, but I think it implies. Let me maybe make the language more precise. What many have taken it to imply, and I include myself in that tradition, is that to to, to envision a world where God's rule and reign comes on earth as it is in heaven, to envision a context where all those who are captive are truly set free, uh, to envision a context where daily bread for all is a reality, a, a context where the last are first, the first are last, the rich are sent away empty, the humble are exalted. To me, that is, and not to me, I think, uh, a good faith argument can be made that those kinds of conditions are impossible to realize under capitalism. It's still an outside chance that it can be realized under socialism, given the structural racism in America's history. Labor unions have a deep history of excluding folks of color from apprenticeships and employment opportunities. Uh, Eugene Debs, who used to get you know a million votes every time he ran for office on the socialist ticket, had a class race opposition and never the twain shall meet kind of view. Uh, so it's it's while socialism I think is more deeply multiracial in some quarters now, it still has some room to go. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a more viable strategy than than what capitalism is, is putting on the table. So let's play out like a concrete scenario to like get people's imagination going, especially for people who are maybe less familiar with terms like decommodification, or, you know, sure. that sort of thing. Uh, let's say, you know, I'm just trying to learn about, okay, so socialism, let's take housing, you mentioned as one of those public goods. Uh-huh. So right now, you know, unless you're in public housing, housing's probably a private good, right? Yeah. And, you know, you have to, so if I want to make rent prices cheaper, you know, if I take a reformist approach, you know, maybe I'm trying to write some letters to the real estate board, write some op-eds, you know, trying to get them to change their behavior. Mm-hmm. Whereas what would a more sort of radical approach sort of look like? I'm not sure how popular this opinion is, but it, it is sure. my position to move along the entire continuum of action. I think there's a need for direct service. This mm-hmm. is uh, what Habitat does in terms of building homes and, and, right. and erecting them. Uh, I think there's a need to have uh, community action and kind of make the system work strategies, as you mm-hmm. kind of mentioned, press for more funding for affordable home ownership, for rental housing, for shelters, for public housing, that kind of thing. Pushing into a different territory is to question the capacity of housing to be something that an individual um, has sold control over, and to leave it up to the market where it can just be bought and to be sold. And so one um, uh, concrete example that... Um, many have used are uh, cooperative housing arrangements. Uh, Community land trust, for instance, is a way to create a legal structure where you can have um, housing be owned um, uh, in a way where equity is held in the uh, organization as opposed to it being held by individual homeowners. Uh, And in doing uh, a community land trust solution, you can pursue long-term or even permanent affordability. And a a long-term or permanently affordable uh, approach has the advantage of a concrete uh, policy tool that, that pushes uh, against gentrification, for instance. And then secondly, it organizes access to housing on the basis of uh, a social right, and it's the responsibility of everyone to administer the system so that we can have housing instead of allowing you know, one's take-home pay to determine whether or not you have access to housing. 
another example will be worker co-ops, the city council, for instance, uh, and I'm, I'm picking policy ideas uh, just to give some reference point of yeah. how we move from here to there, yeah. uh, because that's always a question people raise. Oh, how do you, you, you socialists get from, you know, mm -hmm. the world as we have it to the world as you envision it? Um, so what worker co-ops do is they provide funding to organizations whose governance give workers not just um, ownership in terms of the equity of the company, but the board of directors uh, has um, workers on it uh, and representatives of workers on the organization so that they have a say in investment decisions and mm -hmm. uh, hiring and transitioning, firing sorts of con conditions. Um, severance, all of these kinds of considerations, and, and it's a more democratic way yeah. of running uh, a business as opposed to just, you know, kind of accepting the top-down hierarchy. And this is the podcast by the Democratic Socialists of America, so, you know, that's part of why we <laughs> want to talk to you. But, I mean, but that's a reaction I hear a lot from people, actually, is that isn't this about state control? Isn't it about centralizing power in a few elites? Isn't that what socialism is about? And then I get, especially from Christians, um, mm -hmm. the kind of rebuttal, you know, there's human nature and sin, so the market in some ways is more democratic because it's less about a few you know, autocrats deciding who gets bread and how much. Like, how would you respond to, like, the human nature, sin, power corrupts argument? I mean, obviously, I mean, any thoughts on that? No, I, I, I appreciate it. You, you're, you're taking me to arguments that I, I remember very well from uh, my, my time uh, at Princeton Seminary. Uh, then I was not, uh, uh, I would not have self-identified as a socialist. Um, but I remember having these kind of conversations. And so a, a few thoughts. One is that... Um, Sin is certainly not uh, the entirety of what it means to, to be human. So there's a kind of uh, depravity, kind of greed, self-aggrandizement kind of streak. Uh, but there's also a sense of, uh, within biblical traditions, within church history, a deep belief in uh, human power, human possibility being turned for uh, cooperative, for compassionate, for just ends. This is the... Um, uh, trajectory of humanity being made in the image and likeness of God, humanity being able to be, uh, as Eastern Orthodox traditions accent, uh, partakers of the divine nature, um, you know, being made just a little lower than the angels, for instance. And so mm -hmm. that points to, even if one grants that, that sin personally and structurally is a significant issue, uh, that doesn't erode what uh, the kind of common grace or, or what Catholics would, would, would point to as, you know, prudence and justice and reason as gifts that everyone has and can use to do work like politics well. So that's one thought. The second thought is that um, I think there is uh, at times a need for um, uh, regulatory institutions of the state to, uh, to use uh, the rule of law, to use... Um, organization to make sure that uh, there's a kind of countervailing force to, to capital. Uh, otherwise, we end up with uh, derivatives and collateralized debt obligations crashing the economy, like we saw during the Great Recession. Uh, and to, to really drive the point home, uh, when you have these kind of bad mortgages, as we saw six, seven years ago uh, in my hometown in Atlanta, that led to um, families uh, just around the corner from me uh, losing their homes and nationwide um, residential wealth for black communities was cut in half due to the recklessness of um, 
concentration of wealth at Wall Street and just kind of um, inordinate speculative behavior. I say that because it, it actually could be argued the opposite point, uh, which is to say that financial planning and the um, collusion of private um, captains of financial services um, have an outsized capacity to control prices, at times interest rates, uh, and the destinies of, of, of everyday folks. And that, in fact, is, I think, more hazardous of democracy than having uh, the, the state um, um, have a significant amount of, of, of power in shaping um, how housing, education, healthcare, and these things are distributed. The last thing I'll, I'll say on your question is that um, I think a part of what, for me, is at stake in, in democratic socialism uh, is not uh, obliterating markets. Uh, they, and I know socialists are, are split on these issues. That I think to erase markets altogether mm -hmm. is to uh, is to take questions of uh, people's freedom and capacity to dispose of properties to some extent off the table. And so uh, I, I would be suspicious of, of that. Um, but also I think a part of what the cooperative tradition recognizes is that there's a need to have uh, democracy and equity in how commerce and systems of exchange are, are, are run. I think it is um, a weakness of socialist arguments that it over relies at times on revolution happens solely through the state as mm -hmm. opposed to imagining a cooperative democratic way of running the state, NGOs, uh, and kind of private sector group. I want to go back to something you said uh, earlier about your hometown Atlanta and seeing neighbors, friends, homes dispossessed or because of the session. What, foreclosed. foreclosed. Yeah. What was that experience like? I mean, when you go back now to visit, does it? how does that feel? Um, you know, it's... it's um, a number of things. It it it's frustrating, of course, to to think of people who um, I live. I grew up in Cascade, uh, which is in the southwest portion of Atlanta, and uh, Southwest Atlanta was the the region of the city that I'm speaking of that was just really devastated by foreclosure. Um, you know, you, you you see folks who's um, I, I'm not the biggest fan of this saying, but I, I'll use it just to get my point across. Folks who um, adhere to the general script of you take out a 20, 30-year mortgage and you expect to just make regular monthly payments on it, send your kids to college, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then you renegotiate the terms of your mortgage, you get something that's adjustable and the fine print is not uh, easily understood by hardly anybody. Mm -hmm. And you end up in a space where, um, you know, you're on your heels when you had worked to be in a completely different place when you're, when you're you know, 60 or so. Um, so I think frustrating is what comes to mind. But, but the, the second piece is um, there is a part of what I think socialism's appeal for me is, and, and what its appeal uh, I think is more broadly, is that um, it recognizes that uh, political theory and ideology um, both conceals and it reveals. And, and uh, what a typical capitalist position will do is it will kind of cloud over and airbrush um, the downside and the negative effects of capitalism on black working class, white working class, Latino working class communities such that um, we can celebrate the first African American to do this or the first uh, Latino person to do this, the first uh, uh, 
same gender loving person to do this, but as it relates to um, folks of color and, and people who are uh, oppressed, um, being able to flourish and live healthy whole lives as it relates to socioeconomic status and class, um, that often gets papered over uh, if one doesn't move to an analysis that incorporates or is you know, close to, to socialism. And Atlanta has a pretty stable cadre of middle class doctors, attorneys, judges, you know, college professors, so on and so forth. And, you know, thank God for, for that in many ways. My parents are, are both doctors. But it cannot be the case that progress for a certain amount of folks papers over the incredible and not inevitable intergenerational poverty that happens in places like like Atlanta. And so uh, I think socialism takes, uh, it questions the allegiance of voters of, of color in many respects to the Democratic Party. Uh, and it also helps us to see that we can, in fact, arrange a different world if we move in another direction. We, I mean, we've talked a little bit about, in some ways, what the racial justice movement can learn from incorporating what most socialists critique. What about vice versa in terms of what does the socialist movement, what can they learn in this case from the racial justice sort of discourse or uh, activism? Well, I mean, one is just a, a just very blunt um, realization that I think many folks who have gone to the left forum, who are active in DSA and other spaces have, have recognized. If, if um, socialist folks don't uh, reach out uh, aggressively to uh, folks with color in terms of membership drives, organizing campaigns, uh, it will never um, reach a position of maximum uh, strength that it could do. Uh, and so many of many uh, organizations on the radical left are, you know, largely white organizations. Um, Why do you think that happens to be the case, out of curiosity? I mean, you saw a little bit of that microcosm with Bernie and Hillary and sort of mm -hmm. debates around black voters, but also just voters of color in general. Any thoughts? You know, I, I think it's important to talk very um, deftly about the intersections of, of race and class. Um, to narrate that America, for instance, is a place um, founded not only on uh, the genocide of indigenous folks and the enslavement of, um, of, of black folks, uh, but th there's a sense in which we could say uh, capitalism has never even really been tried in America. It's, it's, a, it's a place founded on land theft uh, and wage theft. Uh, mm -hmm. And we see that from immigrant uh, communities, we see that in terms of child slavery, we see that in terms of indigenous folks. and so. Um, if we if we narrate the profound economic injustice that has happened in different ways uh, to folks across um, traditional cleavages of race and ethnicity, a part of what that opens up is our ability to see that um, economic justice issues are one dimension of a much broader kind of cultural matrix. Uh, and I think that um, oftentimes the story that socialists tell of the America that we've inherited and the America that we might build together um, stays in a kind of abstract, disembodied kind of um, class analysis that has trouble dealing with the tension of how do you meet someone's immediate needs today while pushing for transformation in the medium term or, mm -hmm. or long term. One, one concrete example, maybe switch gears a bit. Uh, if one is organizing unemployed folks or underemployed folks um, or you're trying to um, 
do organizing drives among people who are making less than 15 an hour, for instance, the immediate need is to make at least 15 an hour, which itself in you know, New York City uh, may not be enough to meet all of your needs, but you have to meet that in order to then move towards the kind of socialist uh, sorts of concerns uh, more long term. Um, why is that relevant to socialism? It's relevant because if you take the racial wealth gap between white folks and folks of color, um, there's a greater level of capacity to, to have your parents pay your rent, let's say, while you do mm-hmm. kind of socialist work and kind of figure out your, your way until you can kind of get some sort of steady income whereby the burden of student loan debt and um, access to, to rent and you know, various other expenses that you have to take on it's felt much more heavily by folks of color. So it's oftentimes not a, um, I think socialist spaces are growing in that regard, but many of the ones that I've inhabited have much more room to grow in both analysis and outreach. And I think that inhibits uh, socialist communities from connecting structural racism, pushing against white supremacy, and pushing for uh, a a socialist political economy. Hmm. Last questions around to tie things back to religion and faith. Uh-huh. So I'm curious, there's an article you wrote, I think it was in either the Huffington Post and Sojourners about how capitalism has a spiritual formation plan. Yeah. Could you elaborate on what that means? Mm. I, I appreciate these questions. They're, 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 they're well, well do, do my research. <laughs> a, a part of what capitalism often does particularly as I think we experience in the U.S., is it, it creates, it curates a culture of acquisition where the, um, where one's status, one's sense of self is often measured by what, not only what you can consume, but what you can acquire. Uh, so I think a part of the, the, the challenge for re- religious folks, um, for us is to envision uh, or rather reclaim um, a kind of counter-capitalism dimension of spirituality, which um, lifts up the value of sharing, uh, which lifts up, and this we see this in the breaking of bread Eucharist traditions, uh, which lifts up the power of, um, I mentioned the Eucharist, so I'll say one more thing about that, of participating in a moment where there is bread for all and we drink from a common cup foreshadows and anticipates a moment where um, every need is sufficiently supplied. And so it is a liturgical dress rehearsal for um, a kind of beloved community being fully present. And so for me, it it functions not only as a spiritual reality where God is encountered, but it functions as a kind of social um, reality that that brings, uh, you know, maximum friction against the kind of uh, acquisitive, greed-generating, you know, kind of engines of capitalism. Would you say the liturgical kind of embodied practices yeah. that religions tend to have, um, is that is that something, um, is that a unique contribution you feel that religious organizations or religious forms of expressions can bring to these activist forces or movements? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I learned uh, organizing uh, from a number of folks. Um, uh, one, uh, Lisa Sharon Harper, Reverend Alexia Salvatierra, and uh, a guy named Matt Dunbar. Um, uh, great friends. And, and a part of what they say is that 
uh, some of the gifts that people of faith bring to the broader movement for justice are the songs, stories, and the symbols of, mm -hmm. of our faith traditions, mm -hmm. uh, which give us a way of not only talking about uh, capital versus labor, but talking about um, uh, opposing Pharaoh's attempts to have workers make bricks without straw mm -hmm. and kind of naming and pointing out um, the, the various Pharaohs of today as a way of uh, bringing the salience of um, the story of the children of Israel being delivered from Egypt and identifying uh, the Pharaohs who are intimidating workers from, from organizing a union now. So, so that kind of rich symbolic tradition is, is one thing. I think embodied practice, as you mentioned, is certainly another. I was on a conference call earlier today talking about how Catholic priest tradition of Stations of the Cross is a way of drawing attention to um, gun violence prevention. It's also a way of drawing attention to, uh, again, uh, workplaces that, that may oppose uh, unionizing. It's also a way of doing, you know, prayer vigils and, and creating... Using that model of kind of meditating station. Yeah, that okay. model. Yeah. Thank you for, okay. for, for clarifying. Yeah. Of moving through particular places, um, the Stations of the Cross being a way of marking mm. the travail and the trouble Jesus experienced on the way to Calvary and crucifixion. Um, the second step being that there are contemporary crucifixions and suffering that is mm -hmm. preventable that we experience today. And so we then thereby have a imaginative way to cut through the noise of headlines and social media spots that are pushed going through people's phones. So I think it's a gift that folks of faith bring to um, social movements broadly. Uh, but also socialism in, in particular. Along those lines, there was a line that struck me in one of your articles about how, you know, although socialism might sound pie in the sky, like, wait, you know, wait till we get to heaven, you have that kind of stuff, you say we, there's a Pauline ideal mm -hmm. um, that sort of grips us and makes sure, and something about how our, our conscience has to be pure and clean, and as, as long as we strive towards the ideal, that's what we call for. I'm curious why, why you use the words Pauline ideal. So, a couple of thoughts on that. This, this is I appreciate this topic of conversation. So, so Paul talks over and over in uh, the letters and epistles, whether he wrote them directly or ones that are attributed to Paul, depending on what we're talking about. Uh, but there's a line where he talks about how he's fought a good fight, he's kept the faith, uh, and it may be in First or Second Timothy where he he talks about how he uh, has struggled, you know, moderately to keep a clean conscience. Um, keeping a clean conscience is important. Uh, for, for Christian folks in particular, but perhaps morally for all of us, uh, because connecting Paul to another part in Scripture, it says um, sin is to, I'm thinking in, uh, uh, you know, as, as preachers, you know, you often have chapter and verse spilling off your tongue. Uh, James, the epistle of James, the fourth chapter, the 17th verse says, if you know what you ought to do and you don't do it, it's, it's, it's a kind of sin. Mm. Uh, and so if one senses that we ought to move beyond uh, the ravages of, of capitalism and its exploitation, um, the difficulty of achieving that system in our generation is not an excuse for not getting in, in the fight. It is incumbent upon us uh, for reasons of obligation, but also, I think, for to take in a different direction, reasons of joy and, and, and happiness to push for the kind of society that we no could be possible that we feel like should be possible right now. So so some of that is hope. Uh, some of that is a sense of of, of duty and care mm -hmm. uh, that we want to exercise on behalf of the next generation. Uh, and then another uh, related idea um, 
Reverend William Barber, who's famous for starting the More, More Monday movement yep, in North Carolina, talks about um, how he organized, uh, he talks about in his book, The Third Reconstruction. He talks about how when he first got to start in organizing, he did a campaign on a labor issue or something like that, and he lost. Um, and he reflected often why he lost, and when he went to the next fight, it was an uphill battle, the odds were steep. Uh, and he was praying, you know, should I go for it, should I not go for it, do we need to cut another issue, what have you. And um, what he ultimately landed on is, uh, and he rooted it in some kind of song, uh, or rather pulled it from a song, uh, the idea and obligation of being moral dissenters. Uh, and the relation to this uh, conversation is that uh, there's a need for people of faith, and I think there's, um, speaking as a Christian, I think it's a particular need for folks who follow Christ, to be moral dissenters from the um, from the charade of capitalism, uh, for people to, to to point to you know another way is possible. We can order our lives in a different manner. For me, I could not preach, pray, uh, and write with integrity and with a un soil conscience mm. uh, if I did not in some space of, of, of life push for socialism. So in every um, area of life it's not necessarily something that I, I, I would do for various constraining kind of reasons. Uh, but for me it's an, it's it's a part of uh, what discipleship means for, for me to to push for a socialist economy because just pushing for capitalism is to accept a priori, prior to getting into the fight, um, that whatever policy, law, litigation you're advocating for will leave some people out, will be a partial solution, is a band-aid on a much larger structural problem that we're not even uh, identifying, let alone you know solving the root causes of issues. Very convicting sermon. <laughs> well, I mean, that was, wow. I've never thought about connecting all those words together, discipleship, Socialism, um, duty. Hope. The you mentioned the word joy a couple times, and this is uh -huh. this is ac actually my last question. No, go for uh, what, it. I don't want to this <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, you're clearly a person with a lot of conviction and passion, and mm -hmm. you know, sometimes it's a danger of burnout. Mm -hmm. So in in these in these circles, because your your ideal stance are taught, right? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to me to hear you use the word joy. Like, how do you find joy in sometimes su uh, surprising contexts? Mm. You know. Um, this is, this is wonderful. Again, thank you for, for the question. Uh, one of my favorite preachers, uh, uh, Bill Coffin, says that, uh, he says, joy is the most important Christian emotion. And mm -hmm. he says that um, obedience only calls where joy fails to prompt. Um, and a part of what he's getting at is certainly there's a need for duty, responsibility, obligation. Uh, but, but joy and a sense of... Um, I would even say a kind of uh, subversive laughter and finding irony is, is what enables me to, to keep perspective, to take uh, a kind of long view and to recognize that, you know, we live at a time where despite the election of Donald Trump, um, we have just witnessed the uh, formidable campaign of the first um, candidate for uh, the presidency of the United States in you know, a half century that has garnered 12, 13 million votes, mm -hmm. who has demonstrated that you can raise money uh, running on a socialist, uh, on a more or less socialist platform. Mm -hmm. It's obviously a matter of some debate mm -hmm. uh, to what extent. 
uh, our dear brother Bernie is, is a socialist, <laughs> but he, he wears the banner. Yeah, That's fine. Yeah. He That's claims fun. it. He claims it. <laughs> Wonderful. We claim and embrace you. And, and I should say this, you know, as someone who, who worked for the campaign, organized faith leaders in New York City for Bernie, I, I believe in the brother's candidacy. But my point being, there are things to celebrate. Fight for 15, uh, the movement for black lives is working with Fight for 15 on April 4th, the day when King was assassinated mm -hmm. 50, yeah. nearly 50 years ago, um, pushing for economic justice for sanitation workers. So, so there, are, there are pockets of hope and reason to continue and finding the beauty in the midst of the agony, uh, which is considerable. Uh, it gives me a measure of joy, and I think joy is something that Christians, uh, and, and not solely Christians, but certainly Christians, but also Jewish, Islamic, uh, Buddhist, uh, Hindu folks, etc. Um, it's a gift that we can, and a contagion even, that we can bring to movements that are often dispirited and on you know, intimate terms with disappointment. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for letting me come in and chat for a little bit. That was Reverend Andrew Wilkes, pastor at Greater Allen Amy Cathedral in New York. You can read more of his writing on the web. He's written for The Guardian, Washington Post, BT, And you can follow him on Twitter. His handle is Andrew J. Wilkes. Again, you're listening to Religion and Socialism, a production of the Democratic Socialism of America. The DSA, as a heads up, is actually convening religious leftists and socialists across the nation. So reach out to us online if you want to start a branch in your city or meet other folks. The New York branch just met up recently and we had a lot of fun. This podcast was produced by Devin Brisky. I'm Sarah New. Give us a rating on iTunes. That helps us out. And let us know your feedback or comments. Tune in next month for more conversations about religion, politics, and social justice. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Religious Socialism. Thank you for listening.